Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the early 20th century, Europe and North America were undergoing a radical transformation. Scientific, technological, and political changes disrupted many traditional forms of life. The growth of cities opened up new freedoms and opportunities, and psychologists like Sigmund Freud and Ernst Mach were developing new theories about how we perceive the world and construct reality. These cultural changes gave birth to a form of art that reflected the new sensibilities of this era, modernism. Modernism touched every corner of the creative world, from visual art to architecture to music and literature. The modernist literary movement was characterized in particular by its interest in revealing the inner psychology of its characters. And few texts were as successful in this goal as Virginia Woolf's 1925 novel, Mrs. Dalloway. It was regarded as a kind of novel of consciousness, you know, a novel, and, and Wolf, that's how Woolf was understood. And it really is in many ways, kind of um, really, I think, incredible in its depiction of... of, of um, of thinking and feeling, um, but it's also a London novel. Um, it's also a war novel. And very recently, um, we have kind of, or scholars have kind of come to uh, see it as also a pandemic novel because it's set right after the um, the flu pandemic of 1918. And, you know, it's kind of really about the sort of um, trauma, which it depicts not directly, but really indirectly, again, in terms of its kind of ripple effects throughout society. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Dora Zhang to discuss Mrs. Dalloway. So let's talk about Virginia Woolf, this extraordinary person. Could you give us a biographical sketch? She was born kind of in the late Victorian period. So she was born into a kind of late Victorian girlhood, um, into a very prominent family, um, what we would now call a kind of blended family. Both of her uh, parents had been married previously, had children from previous marriages. Their spouses had died. Then um, they married and had several more children. So she was part of a family of like eight siblings. Um, and it was a very prominent uh, literary and artistic family. Um, her father, Leslie Stephen, was the editor of the Dictionary of National Biography. Um, he was a literary critic, a, um, a writer himself, a public intellectual. And um, her mother was a kind of renowned pre-Raphaelite beauty um, and um, also part of a family of, of artists. Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen. She grew up in the South Kensington District of London. Because of her parents' connections, she was constantly surrounded by many of the well-known artists and writers of the time. Her father was very close friends with Henry James. Her godfather was James Russell Lowell. She had inherited this tradition of, of art and culture. Um, 
Then her parents, uh, her mother died, and she suffered through a series of losses of her brother, also her half-sister, and then eventually also her father, and moved with her siblings to Bloomsbury, which was this, um, from Kensington, which is where she had originally uh, had lived with her family, to Bloomsbury, which was... um, it's much more kind of bohemian, um, more run-down um, uh, neighborhood of London at the time. Virginia's two brothers, Toby and Adrian, attended the University of Cambridge. But like most women of her time, Virginia wasn't given the opportunity of formal education. And this was a kind of a sore point for her sort of throughout her life. Um, so she, you know, really read everything in her father's very extensive library. Um, so she, you know, was an incredible reader um, and and read very widely, but didn't have a formal um, kind of training. Um, and this was something she also resented her, her father for, for not just kind of paying for her education. Soon after Virginia and her surviving family members relocated to Bloomsbury, they began to host social gatherings for a handful of Toby's intellectual friends from Cambridge. Over time, this evolved into a small collective made up of prominent writers, artists, and philosophers known today as the Bloomsbury Group. John Maynard Keynes is part of this group. Um, Bertrand Russell is an associate of philosophers, um, biographers, um, uh, really a kind of incredible sort of forward thinking group in, in, in many ways um, and very unconventional. I mean, everyone was sleeping with everyone and also their, you know, that person's um, wife or husband. Um, they would um, have parties. They would spend time at each other's you know, houses. Um, they took trips together. You know, they went to Greece, um, other places in Europe. Um, so, it was very much a kind of social social group as well as, um, as an intellectual one. This group situated Virginia and her siblings among the intellectual circles in London, something that would later play a role in getting her writing career off the ground. Okay, so she's brilliant. She reads everything. Uh, she's blocked from formal prestigious education and respect. But she's able to find it through the admiration of these friends that she she makes. Um, how does she actually start publishing and see herself as a writer? I think her first published piece is um, an anonymous review. Um, and she starts writing um, reviews um, for, um, I think it was the Times Literary Supplement or something like that. Um, and she really continues to have a very prolific career as a reviewer. I mean, she's also, in addition to being um, a writer herself, she really participates in the literary culture and publishing culture of her day. In 1912, Virginia married the British political theorist Leonard Wolfe. Together, they established a printing press called the Hogarth Press. And then that becomes a real sort of commercial enterprise. And they, you know, the Hogarth Press, their printing press ends up publishing um, um, the first uh, UK edition of The Wasteland. Um, it publishes Gertrude Stein, um, Wolfe's own work, and Leonard Wolfe's own work, um, the standard edition of, of the works of Sigmund Freud, which is translated by 
James Strakey, who's the brother of Lytton Strakey, who is um, a writer who's part of the Bloomsbury group. Um, so she's really, she's really actually very, yeah, connected to kind of publishing and, um, uh, and reviewing and kind of literary culture of her day. Up until this point, Wolf was mostly writing book reviews and short stories. But in 1915, she published her first novel, The Voyage Out. I think it's it's reasonably well received. Um, it's I think you can really see her trying to. It's very ambitious. She's trying to do something um, a little different. She's trying to find her own form, but it's a it, it's um, still very much in the kind of mode of a Bildungsroman, although it's following this young woman, um, this young female um, protagonist um, who who ends up dying. Her next novel after The Voyage Out was called Night and Day. She's constantly, you know, continuing to write um, um, essays and reviews at the same time um, as working on on these novels. Um, And those are her first kind of, those are considered her early sort of um, apprentice works in many ways, in that they're much more kind of um, in a standard sort of 19th century realist mode. Um, and you can see her really sort of trying to develop her her voice. Um, and then uh, Jacob's Room in um, 1922 is the kind of bridge between her early works and her sort of mature works, which really start with Mrs. Dalloway. Um and uh, Jacob's Room is about, um, has at its center this very enigmatic figure, Jacob Flanders, who um, is a soldier um, who, are, who goes off to war, who um, is modeled in many ways on her um, brothers. Her One of her brothers dies very early, um, not in the war, but of fever. I, f- I forget the exact disease that he dies of. Um, also a, a devastating blow. He's very gifted, so sort of centered on this kind of unknowable figure. Um, it's narrated from the perspective of many people who know Jacob. And so, you know, he's really the, the center of the novel, but it's a sort of empty center or blank center. That sort of refractive method where um, you, you see someone as they're seen by someone else, that's something that, you know, you really continue to see in her, her novels and that she continues to, a technique that she continues to um, develop. So um, Jacob's Room is this kind of stylistic and formal departure, um, experimental in mode. Um, so what are these cultural intellectual currents that she's drawing from? Why did she feel motivated to try new things with literature? Yeah, I mean, so a very kind of broad strokes um, way of understanding modernism, of early 20th century modernism, is that these writers are reacting to the kind of seismic changes that are, um, that, that have been, you know, really happening throughout the 19th century, but then also really, um, uh, accelerating in the early 20th century. And so those standard ones are like, um, kind of the results of industrialization, um, urbanization. Um, it's considered in, in many ways a very urban modernism, a kind of urban phenomenon, right? It's centered. You have all these city novels, like Mrs. Dalloway's a London novel. Um, Ulysses is set in Dublin. Um, 
you know, you have um, like uh, John Dos Passos um, uh, writing about New York in in the U.S., um, also the Harlem Renaissance very much, you know, um, um, set in New York. So um, it's it's kind of also it's a site of the city as this new and this kind of newly expansive cosmopolitan place where um, that had really become the center of life. Um uh, and where people are living next to strangers, you know, and where you really are seeing um, divisions of class, for instance, very clearly, right, in just different neighborhoods, for instance, in a city. Um, so industrialization, urbanization, kind of changes in social relations um, that are um, wrought in in part, in no small part, also by the war. I mean, the um, First World War is incredibly important in um, in modernism, and um, the kind of ripple effects. I mean, it's it's something that has this that changes really everything and of every aspect of um, of society. The modernist movement was also a response to the time that preceded it, the Victorian era. The Victorian era was characterized by class rigidity, conservatism, and clear-cut gender roles. And modernism sought to break from these restrictions and embrace the new freedom that came with urbanization and industrialization. There's also incredible increases in technology, right? I mean, the railway in the 19th century had connected all of these parts of the country. Um, you know, you have motor cars now becoming more um, standard. Um, and you see that in Mrs. Dalloway as well, the motor car and the airplane as well, right? Um, and modern forms of um of um, kind of uh, modern phenomena like advertising. I mean, that's another thing that you see in Mrs. Dalloway and that you see in, in Ulysses as well. So just all of these new kind of cultural phenomena, these new kind of aspects of daily life, um, changes in social relations between men and women, um, between the classes, some increase in class mobility, um, um, you know, and a sense that... Um, and a sense of kind of wanting to break with um, with older traditions, those all characterize um, modernism. And I should say, of course, there are many ways in which that's that's kind of the picture that they wanted to, to depict. And there are also many ways in which they um, are still kind of very connected tr- to tradition, looking back to tradition, et cetera. But that idea of a rupture of being modern, um, that was very much the self-mythology of, um, of the writers that we've now come to call modernist. After writing Jacob's Room, Wolf began a series of short stories known as the Mrs. Dalloway stories. These works were sort of a testing ground for different aspects of the stories she'd tell in the novel. In fact, Wolf had been working with these storylines and characters for years. Two of the characters, Clarissa and Richard Dalloway, appear in Wolf's first novel, The Voyage Out. But in 1925, she finally published The Complete Mrs. Dalloway. And that was the novel that she felt um, uh, where she wrote in her diaries um, that she had begun to, she felt that she had begun at the age of 40 to finally say something in her own voice. And she discovered um, a number of things, what she called her tunneling method in Mrs. Dalloway, where she um writes, you know, in her, again in her diaries, finding this method of um, digging out 
caves behind her characters. Um, and, and she calls this her tunneling method. And it's this way of kind of connecting the present moment to past moments and of sort of um, very fluidly rendering the memories of, of, of the characters as they're kind of going through their daily life, um, which adds this um, kind of tremendous dimension and, and depth and it way expands the scope of the novel um, from this the 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 events that are actually being told um and it's also incredibly fluid so you know whereas you might um sort of some you might expect um some kind of clearly demarcated flashback you know so as to orient the reader you know 10 years earlier um this thing had happened um she really doesn't do any of that it's kind of a very kind of easy slipping in and out of the present moment into the past moment and so the result is it can be very disorienting when you first read it, but um, this was a kind of technique that she um, really um, felt she had discovered or sort of figured out how to actually make work in Mrs. Dalloway. So now to the book itself, Mrs. Dalloway. Um, broadly, what is the book about and what is the general story or arc? So it is um, set in the uh, over the course of a single day in London in June in 1923. So you know it's five years after the war ends, um, World War One, and it follows kind of two main characters who you might think of as doubles or foils. Um, one is the you know, titular character. Clarissa Dalloway, who is the wife of a conservative MP, um, you know, kind of really ensconced in the heart of um, London society and beyond that of the kind of British Empire, right? Really a member of the ruling classes. Um, and, uh, and she kind of goes throughout her day and, um, you know, she's just recovered from a recent illness and she has, uh, she meets her old, um, an old friend, um, an, an old lover, um, and then has a party at the end of the novel, which, um, the prime minister comes to and also, um, a, a couple and, and Peter Walsh, her old lover, and also, um, Sally Seaton, who's another um, kind of uh, person from her past whom she kind of loved, um, also shows up at the party. The other storyline follows a character named Septimus Warren Smith, a shell-shocked veteran of World War I. He's a working class man um, who's kind of come to London to, you know, um, make himself, um, but who, you know, we learned sort of really um, loved kind of literature um, and, um, um, uh, yeah, who loved literature and sort of wanted to make himself um, kind of uh, perhaps as an artist um, before he goes to the war. And then he comes back and is totally broken um, and is kind of constantly having um, hallucinations um, and, and visions of, um of uh, a friend who he served with, who I know there's also kind of um, a sense of of um, uh, that they you know loved each other or were involved in some some capacity, um, and he has this Italian wife whom he met you kind know, of during the war, um, and uh, she's also and so she's in London, and we get sort of some of her perspective as well, and. Um, uh, it follows them, you know, on these parallel tracks throughout the course of London, 
as characters are walking, you know, from one park to another, down a street. Um, and uh, Septimus and Clarissa, their paths, I think, almost cross, but um, they never actually meet. And the only kind of um, the, the closest to meeting is when Clarissa hears of Septimus's death at her party. And she kind of feels, you know, in the middle of this celebration, um, death has, you know, entered the room. Um, but she feels this really unexpected kinship with him as well. Um, and, um, so it's a moment when their stories kind of, um, kind of merge. Um, but, Wolf conceived of it as a, you know, um, Clarissa and Septimus as sort of, um, as she puts it, um, sanity and insanity side by side, um, and kind of two versions of a truth in a way, the sane version of a truth of the truth and the insane version of the truth. So, what was the reception when it first came out? So I think it was pretty well received um, when it came out. Um, you know, it was um, published in the UK and the US simultaneously, which is a sign that she had kind of of her sort of climbing reputation um, that that happened. Um, and um, I think, you know, there were critics who sort of were a bit, who were also were a bit puzzled by, um, by the story. But I think by and large, it was recognized as a kind of experiment, as a kind of bold experiment that put her in this group of um, kind of, um, you know, of writers who were trying to do something different. Mrs. Dalloway situated Wolf among the other experimental writers of her time, including James Joyce, Marcel Proust, Dorothy Richardson, and Mae Sinclair. It was, um, I think, you know, not considered her best work or her most kind of important work. Um, and actually, her later novel, The Years, um, which now is much less read by the public, was um, way more commercially successful um, and, um, you know, kind of led to her being in vogue and um, things like that. Um, but Mrs. Dalloway, you know, was, I think, I, on the whole, I think, fairly well received um, uh, and that she certainly had a very um, kind of um, she she had a literary reputation in her own time and, and sort of also was very much in, were in the public sphere of her own time. And she you know, you would see she would be writing book reviews very regularly in like the New York Times book review, for instance, like that sort of thing. Wolf continued experimenting with these new techniques in her later works. So after Mrs. Dalloway, she writes to the lighthouse, which is, um, as she puts it in her diary, you know, she's trying to find a new form. Um, she's not sure even if to call it a novel. She says, um, it's not quite a novel, but what is it? An elegy or, you know, and then she leaves it blank. Um, and it's, it's in many ways the most autobiographical of her novels. She's kind of working through her relationship to her father, um, her kind of, um, a beloved but very difficult um, man, um, and um, also her relationship to her mother, whom she loved very much, was very much this kind of um, ideal, this this kind of Victorian ideal of the angel of the house, very beautiful, um, kind of taking care of everyone, kind of nursing the sick, um, but and and sort of a very strong character, but also opposed to the suffrage, uh, the the women's suffrage movement, and opposed to women, um, you know, uh, women's rights in many ways, because she felt that women, um, the women's work was important, but that it was separate work from men's work, and that it was really in the domestic sphere. 
After To the Lighthouse, Wolf published Orlando, a biography. This story is about the adventures of a fictional poet who changes genders from man to woman and lives for hundreds of years. Wolf drew inspiration from the life of poet and novelist Vita Sackville West. Sackville West was also Wolf's close friend and lover. A year later, Wolf wrote one of her most well-known works, A Room of One's Own. A Room of One's Own, you know, based on a couple of lectures that she gave to um, you know, um, women's societies um, and takes up this question of, you know, um, w- I, very famously, what if Shakespeare had had a sister? I mean, she you know, poses this very provocative question. Um, why have there, what, why have women been um, kind of shut out from writing? Or what are the conditions that are um, necessary for um, women to um, write? And she kind of invents this whole you kind know, of history of um, this kind of counterfactual history in, in of um, Shakespeare's sister who she also says would have been probably, you know, um, have, have gone mad. Um, and, and this is, I think, also related to her own kind of illness and her own struggles with um, mental health, which were due to a number of personal issues and, or, and, and events in her personal life, but also, I think, to the kind of constraints that she um, um, felt um, uh, as a woman at, at this time. Um, and, um, that is published, I think, as a, um, as a, uh, as kind of standalone, um, book by the, um, by the Hogarth, um, press and has kind of really been claimed as a sort of early, um, as an early feminist, um, manifesto, which, you know, I think is something that Wolf also, um, understood it to be. It's one of the most explicit statement, her, her, the first most explicit statement of, um, uh, of, of her feminism. Wolf published three more novels, The Waves, The Years, and Between the Acts. She also published many short stories and essays. And under what circumstances does uh, Virginia Woolf die? Right. So she, um, after, you know, her late novels, um, the years um, in her essay, Three Guineas, and then um, she left an, a posthumous, a, a novel kind of almost finished that was published posthumously between the acts in 1941, she drowned herself um, in the River Ouse in um, Sussex. Um, and, you know, during this time. So this is kind of at a really bleak point in the war in World War II. Her houses in London um, had been bombed during the Blitz. Um, she and Leonard Wolf were living in Sussex, their house in Sussex. Um, and she had, you know, struggled with kind of mental health um, issues throughout her life. Um had had a series of breakdowns um, and had had suicide attempts also previously. And, um, you know, this was um, kind of, she made this decision that she left a note saying she just kind of, she could feel a sort of another spell kind of coming on of, of, of um, kind of a dark um, period. And she just didn't want to go through it um, again. Um, and the, you know, the the note is kind of very widely available. It's a very um, moving note to, uh, to Leonard. She says, you know, no two people could have been happier than, than we have been. Um, and she says, you know, she's sorry. And um, she walked into the river with stones in her pocket and, um, and drowned herself. 
After her death, Wolff's central role in the development of modernism was forgotten. Instead, prominent male authors were given all the credit. It's Pound, it's Eliot, and Joyce. These are kind of the central figures of modernism. And Wolfe is just not really a part of this um, account. And she was, she was just kind of considered um, a minor modernist writer for, for a long period, um, uh, kind of post uh, after World War II, um, when her reputation kind of languished until um, really um, around the 70s, when feminist critics, um, you know, kind of second wave feminism really, you know, was sweeping through um, uh, the academy, among other places. And when feminist, um, you know, literary scholars kind of um, rehabilitated Wolf or sort of rediscovered Wolf, um, claimed her as a feminist writer, claimed her as an important modernist writer. Um, and all of these scholars who did so much archival work to, you know, um, uh, find her manuscripts, you know, and publish her manuscripts, her diaries, her letters, which showed just how embedded she was in the kind of literary culture of the time um, and how important um, she was in these kind of publishing networks, um, the Hogarth Press, um, and so on. Um, and that really helped to kind of cement her reputation as a major modernist. So now, you know, if you look at the back of any paperback edition of like Mrs. Dalloway, it'll say Virginia Woolf, one of the major, you know, modernist writers or 20th century writers. Um, and that was really, you know, a result of that, um, of, of that period and the kind of second wave, the energy of second wave feminism at that time. And then I would say, you know, a few decades later, or perhaps as part of that, um, the kind of sense of, of the claiming of Wolf is also a queer writer, um, as well and as a lesbian writer, um, b- both based on her biography and, um, and, and, um, also her works, um, and now I think she's, you know, you can read her in all of these different ways. You know, I, as I was saying, Mrs. Dalloway is a pandemic novel, but um, I think, you know, you people have adopted ecological perspectives on on Wolf. I mean, she's very much, you know, um, interested in kind of writing about nature as this space that's uninhabited or as a kind of um, uh, in distinction to um, um, human life. That's also another way in which you know, she has been sort of rethought about and um, um, from the perspective of illness and um, disability as well. And I think continuing on in thinking about consciousness and um, her, you know, renderings of um, of consciousness. Um, so now, you know, they're a kind of branch of like cognitive um, literary studies where people are trying to kind of bring together you know, insights from cognitive psychology and, and, um, uh, and, and, um, the study of fiction and thinking about like, how do novels represent minds? Um, and, you know, Wolf's work is, um, still very kind of, I think, very amenable to that, um, um, and a good, good place for, for that. How do you still see modernism alive today? aesthetically were very shaped by the legacy of modernism. So many things that we take for granted in fiction, like nonlinear plots and, you know, um, kind of, um, um, you know, just beginning right in the middle of things and sort of not explaining things and, um, um, you know, confusing the reader. <laughs> I mean, all of these things are, um, uh, you know, kind of, 
um, modes of fiction that were um, pioneered or that were certainly brought to the fore in um, in in modernism. I think you know the uh, modernists were really part of a world that was kind of understanding itself to be um, very interconnected, um, you know, that was really kind of aware of the effects of um, of empire and of imperialism um, and that, you know, um, and of kind of um, questions of fascism and democracy. I mean, these were, you know, very live issues. Um, and, and I don't want to suggest that they were somehow unimpeachable in their politics or on the right side of history. And, you know, I think you can take Wolf um, herself to task. Um, I mean, she was, um, uh, I think she, she, you know, there there are many kind of anti-imperialist sentiments in her work, and you can see that um, in her um, and her connections of kind of feminism, to the project of feminism to anti-imperialism. I think just this sense of, you know, um, this sense of kind of being part of a really fast-changing world where um, the ground has, you know, been kind of, um, has, has just sort of been, you know, whipped away from from under you, which I think is something that many people in the early 20th century felt um, with the breakdown of traditional canons of authority um, and secular and growing secularism um, and and all of these kinds of massive changes. Um, I think we in the 21st century are, you know, feel ourselves very much to be um, undergoing something similar. Um, and so I think that exp- the, the rendering of that experience of alienation um the kind of sense um, and and including alienation from the effects of capitalism, um, you know, those are all things that and the kind of desire for a more expansive world um, and for different possibilities of social relation, um, you know, those in in rendered in the most kind of in, in aesthetically daring forms. Um, I think those are are still things that we both kind of political and aesthetic things that we um, still want. Um, so you know, I think that's the very much part of modernism's um, unfinished and ongoing legacy. In Mrs. Dalloway, Virginia Woolf helped develop the novel of consciousness by getting deep inside the heads of her characters. Wolf showed human experience from a different, more internal perspective. Mrs. Dalloway expanded what literature can do, while also revealing the emerging experience of modern life. It's a novel that really rewards rereading. It's very much about aging and about time passing. And um, I think, you know, you really can find something different in it um, at every age. You see something different in it at every age. Um, and, you know, even its historical contexts, you know, continue to kind of surprise us in terms of the connections that we can draw between um, it, the very specific situation that it depicts and, um, and our present day. And I think, you know, like all great works, um, all great works are ones that are are very precisely located and that, you know, are about that precise kind of historical moment and that have the capacity to speak to um, uh, to audiences in other times and other places. And um, to me, Mrs. Dalloway is a really wonderful example of a text that just that does just that and that um, I think still has a lot to say to us today.
Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair Undo. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>